Brandon, thank you so much for the opportunity to uh, stand in the pulpit that God has entrusted to you, speak to the people uh, that God has entrusted to you. I'm uh, humbled by that and grateful for it. I'll also say, brother, if, if worship is like this every Sunday, man, if you can't preach, I don't know what's wrong with you. Um, what a joyful time. It is a huge blessing to me personally when I go to churches and speak and and I'm around people who sing, um, and y'all sing, and I appreciate that. I want to invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1. By the way, if you're one of those people that sometimes have a tough time finding some of those smaller Pauline epistles, I'll uh, teach you a little trick. I hope you remember more than this from today, but just remember that Gentiles eat pork chops, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. That's the order. So if you hit any of those four, you can find your way around. We'll have the text on the screen in just a little bit, I believe, and I'll be preaching uh, from the uh, English Standard Version, the ESV. If you use a different translation, words might be slightly different. The message, I assure you, uh, is the same. I also want to take the liberty. Um, I know this is a bit informal for for church, but um, one of the habits I've gotten into when I go to preach, I like to take selfies with the people I worship with, and so if you're on social media, you can find me and find that a little bit later. You may even be able to pick yourself out and feel free to tag yourself if you'd like to. I um, also want to say thank you for your generosity. Uh, Calvary Baptist Church is one of the most generous uh, churches in our state convention and certainly one of the most generous in the East, and uh, we're grateful for that. I won't go through the whole litany with you, but just know that because I earned an undergraduate degree at, at Chowan University, a Master of Divinity at uh, Southeastern, uh, planted a church in Arizona, and so was the beneficiary of CP giving there, and for most of uh, the last 13 years, I've been a denominational employee, so you've been paying for my salary and benefits. You've been investing in me for 28 years, and I am just now showing up to say thank you. And um, by the way, I shared that uh, same litany at a church I once pastored in Eastern North Carolina, Cashew Baptist Church in Windsor, and afterwards one of the members uh, who is a dear friend I've stayed in contact with over the years afterwards, he said, Pawson, you've been on the dole too long. It's time for you to get off. Um, hopefully, you won't regret your investment when we're done today. But we do want to thank you for your uh, generosity and joining hands with thousands of other Baptist churches in North Carolina so that we can do together what none of us can do alone. You know, one of the things that uh, Brandon may not even know about me is that since my childhood, I've been a bit of a car nut. I've enjoyed reading about cars, looking at cars. Um, way back in the day, some of you who are old enough to remember when uh, the manufacturers used to roll out all their new models at the same time of year in October, and then they bumped it up to September. But when I was real young, my daddy would load my brother and me up in the car, and we would hit all the car lots in Charlotte, and we'd go uh, troll around the back part of the lot to see the stuff that hadn't even been put in a showroom yet, just to see all the little minute details 
that were different from year to year. If you care to know what distinguishes the model years of Monte Carlos from 73 to 77, I still know that and I'll be happy to share it with you if you don't have better things to think about. One of the things I've noticed about cars, if you're a car nut, this is one of the most exciting times in the automotive business, particularly in the United States. We're seeing more brands rolled out than um, any time in the course of my lifetime, and probably the most new brands and, and, and freshest approaches to, to automobiles that we've seen in a hundred years. You may be aware that um, now it's as cheap or cheaper to buy a Tesla than it is many other American cars. Certainly cheaper to buy a Tesla than it is to buy a full-size Chevy, Ram, or Ford pickup truck. You can buy one for less than 40 grand now. You may also have seen in the news, um, I don't know, maybe a year or so ago, the announcement about VinFast coming to North Carolina, a company that's based in Vietnam and is planning to build uh, a huge facility in Chatham County, and they're going to build batteries and automobiles there. And while it's an exciting time, you know, there are some things where that VinFast, for instance, or even uh, a Tesla I read about just recently that will take the quarter mile at 152 miles per hour, and I'm operating off my memory here, which is not always reliable, I think somewhere in the neighborhood of less than eight seconds. That's blasting fast. But for all the things that are different and new and fresh today, there are some things that are really just fundamentally the same. You know, that Tesla that will get you a quarter mile and 152 miles an hour still has a lot in common with Henry Ford's Model T. Now, the propulsion system's different. Safety equipment's obviously different. I've never driven either a Model T nor a Tesla, but I'm guessing the ride quality is a little better in that Tesla than that Model T was. But you know, at the, at the heart of what they do, they still carry people and stuff from point A to point B. Radically different in so many ways, but at the heart, still very much the same. Now, you may be wondering, so Dennis, what does that have to do with us this morning at Calvary Baptist Church in Rocky Mount? You know, I'm going to state the obvious up front. We're all very different people. By the way, one of the other things that encourages me about you as a church, I see some generational variety here. Some young folks and some that are not as young as you used to be. Um, that's less and less common. You ought to be glad for that. You ought to rejoice in that. You ought to guard that jealously. Work toward increasing. We're all very different. Different ideas of what's important. Different gifts and abilities. You know, Paul stated this in his letter to the Corinthian church. He used the imagery of the body to say that all of our human bodies have different organs and different uh, members, that is, um, different extremities, uh, feet, hands, etc. 
But the body functions together as one. Again, he used that to communicate this truth that while we may have different God-given gifts, different skills and abilities, different passions, that God can use all of that together in one church to accomplish one thing that is the Great Commission. Paul makes that point in a different fashion to the church at Philippi. You may or may not be aware the church at Philippi was really precious to Paul. It's probably the church that he was most personally close to. Had a deep affection for the people there. That comes through as you read through his uh, letter to the Philippians. Stands in stark contrast, for instance, to the letter to the church at Rome. Rome's a much larger letter. I've sometimes called it the first systematic theology much more academic language, propositional truth that Paul lays out in the book of Romans, all written in a very formal fashion to a people he had never met before. But the Philippians were close to him. He cared about them. He loved them deeply. And that's one reason he was troubled by the conflict that existed in the church. And he writes to address that conflict. By the way, Paul wasn't a 21st century American Baptist preacher. He actually names names. He points out that Syntyche and Yodia are are at odds with each other. We don't know exactly what the, the problem was, but we do know that they were at odds with each other so deeply that the church had divided into factions. And Paul writes to address that. And as he does so, in the beginning of his letter, he points out this reality. But again, while we may be different, while there may be some things that are very uncommon about us, there may be things that distinguish us individually in terms of personalities or things that we know, gifts and abilities that we have, there are certain things that are common to every believer. And he addresses those in this first chapter beginning at verse 27. He writes to the Philippian church and to us, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Let's pray. Father, as we have already sung to you, we love you because you have first loved us. Lord, as we have also sung to you, we affirm the truth of your word that you have demonstrated that love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
Lord, we thank you that as we have already sung that you have made the son of propitiation a satisfying sacrifice facing your wrath for our sin. And in doing so, you have redeemed us and you have claimed us for your own. Father, we revel in that reality. We rejoice in your goodness and kindness to us. Father, we also thank you that you have left us with more to do than just to rejoice in your goodness. But Lord, even as we do that, to use it as a propulsion for the work of the gospel. Lord, you have created the church for your mission. You didn't simply give the church a mission because we had nothing to do. Lord, I thank you for those that have gone before us in my own life, my parents, Sunday school teachers, pastors of Westside Baptist Church in Charlotte who faithfully proclaimed your good news. And through them, you opened my eyes. Spirit, you opened my heart to that truth. And Lord, we thank you for all of those that you have used, perhaps parents, small group teachers, pastors, perhaps classmates, co-workers, neighbors. You've used a variety of people in our lives to open our eyes to the truth of the gospel. And Father, we are a people who not only believe that you have redeemed us, but we believe that you are still on a mission to redeem others that will join us around that throne to sing your praises for eternity. Lord, as we consider your word this morning, we ask that you give us some wisdom and understanding. Lord, we hope to leave here with more than just more information. We ask you to use your word to continue to transform us, shape us more clearly into the image of Jesus. So that all of those who live in Rocky Mountain and the surrounding areas of Nash and Edgecombe counties, the state of North Carolina, the United States and the world will hear that a sacrifice has been paid in their place, paid the price of their sin, that through faith in Jesus, they may become a new creation. Lord, to that end, we ask you to seal these words to our hearts, live them out through our existence. For your glory and through the name of our Lord, Jesus, we pray. Amen. As I mentioned before, this is a church that's very close to, to Paul. He's concerned about them not only because of what's going on in the life of the church, but he's concerned about them because he knows them personally. As I mentioned before, he, he writes to them to reveal that there are certain things that we all have in common. And I want us to look at those this morning and to see how they influence our lives as we live life on mission together, both in a local church and 
joining hands with other believers around the state, around the nation, around the world. Notice with me first that Jesus' followers display a common consistency. Jesus' followers display a common consistency. In verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Again, Paul is writing to primarily address a a, a division that has existed in the church, and he calls upon them to to live out a life that it's worthy of the gospel. And he says not only to do that when I'm around, but it's very obvious that he's not with them at this moment, and he writes to them, and he points out to them that their, their good behavior, if you will, them acting like Christians should, them living in unity, them being on mission together is not something they do just when Paul is around. But he calls upon them to do it at all times, whether I'm there or whether I'm not. You know, I grew up in church. I sometimes tell the tired old joke. Maybe you've heard it. If I ever have the opportunity to preach here again, you'll probably hear it again if you haven't. When I was a kid, I had a drug problem because my mom and daddy drug me to church on Sunday morning and they drug me to church on Sunday night and they drug me to church on Wednesday night and for many years at Westside Baptist Church we had four Saturday night southern gospel singings and my mom and daddy drug me to church for that too and you know growing up in church I hope you were more mature than I was as a kid but you know growing up in church I can remember in primary Sunday school class when we'd all bow our heads to pray There's always one kid, and I have to admit to you, sometimes I was that kid who had one eye open, looking to see who's got their head bowed and who doesn't. And when the amen was said, that's what we were eager to talk about. So-and-so didn't have their eyes closed. You know, as a youngster, the logic wasn't really well formed in my brain. Brandon's saying, yeah, I sure it is now. But it wasn't real well formed in my brain. And I didn't really think and anticipate what might come as a result. And maybe you have had the experience and you know the teacher's response was, well, how do you know that? This is what Paul is saying to them. Whether I'm there or not, whether I'm watching you, live with a common consistency that honors Christ. Live in a way that glorifies Him. Live in a way that's on mission at all times. Live in a way that is self-sacrificial with one another. Something that He'll get to over in chapter 2. Whether I'm there to watch you or not, live out this common consistency. You know, life in community and the accountability that it brings are valuable things. It's one of the reasons I've said to folks that local church involvement is important. I heard a pastor tell a story one time about sitting in a, a deacon's meeting and one of the deacons had raised a question about the active involvement of some of the others and and um this is another one of those old sayings that, that I heard from my mama's family. 
the hit dog barks first. You know what that means? You got a pack of dogs and you throw a rock in there. The one that's going to yap is the one that gets hit by the rock. And that's what happened in this meeting. And this one fellow, he felt he had been attacked. And so he speaks up and he says, well, you know, I can worship the Lord all the same on the back of my horse riding through the woods. And according to this pastor's account, he said, yes, you can and should worship the Lord on the back of your horse as you ride through the woods. Worship being a response to the attributes and activities of God, responding to who he is and what he's done. We ought to live in a worshipful posture. But he went on to say, while you may worship the Lord out wherever you are, the local church is the biblically defined, God-ordained, Jesus-headed, Holy Spirit-organized and empowered place for spiritual growth and maturity to happen. It doesn't happen anywhere else. Now, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir, so to speak, because you're here. You obviously see value in local church involvement. That's why you're here. The the accountability that it brings is valuable to us because when we go wayward, there are brothers and sisters in Christ who can lovingly say to us, as I've had some say to me on occasion, it's time to come back. It's time to live out that common consistency. Paul says, regardless of whether I, as one you recognize as an authority, is around or not. We live life with a common consistency. Notice also that Jesus' followers share a common struggle. Verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, Paul uses language here that would have been familiar to the Philippians. One of the things you may or may not know about the city of Philippi is that it was a a regional seat of Roman government. There was a lot of Roman military in town. You know, my wife and I live in Newburn. We live down the low end of town. And by the way, we're not so far from that forest fire. I appreciate your, your prayers. But we're close enough to Cherry Point. We got a lot of active duty Marines in our neighborhood. It just brings a different culture to life. There's a different environment in a military town. The Philippians knew that because they lived around these Roman soldiers. That regional seat of Roman government. And Paul uses language that would have been familiar to them when he says striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, for the sake of the gospel. He uses this word that carries with it, it's a military term that, that reveals the, the strategy or the tactic, I should say, of the Roman army at the time. When they were advancing, they were literally shoulder to shoulder moving forward. And anything in their way typically got crushed. Paul says with the same commitment to the work of the gospel, 
not talking about the spirit of dominance that came from the Roman army, but the tactical measure of being shoulder to shoulder with one another. If you'll allow me to use incorrect grammar for emphasis, ain't no daylight between us. We're moving the gospel forward in our local communities, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our classrooms, because we are shoulder to shoulder. We have that common struggle. We're advancing the work of the gospel. We're engaging in spiritual warfare together. We're facing the cultural and spiritual opposition together. I can't help but wonder if the Holy Spirit would have called the words of the preacher, Kohelet, the writer of Ecclesiastes, to mind. When Ecclesiastes reminds us in chapter 4, verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and is not and has not another to lift him up. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. You know, one of the challenges for us as American Christians is to remember that the word calls upon us not to be conformed to the likeness of the world. That is not to let the the unbelieving culture shape us into its likeness, to be in union with it. And one of the struggles that we have as American Christians is buying into the notion of American individualism. That we can do it on our own. We don't need anybody. We're independent. We don't need anybody to tell us what to do. We don't need anybody to lift us up. That might be the message of American culture, friends, but it is antithetical to biblical teaching. Paul says that we are in a common struggle in the work of the gospel. The work of the gospel is not just for a pastor or preacher to do, not just for the staff to do, not just for Sunday school teachers, not just for those who we think of as super spiritual. The work of the gospel belongs to each and every one of us. Paul says it's not just for the elders of the church at Philippi, not just for those in the pulpit to use our environment, our language, but those in the pews as well. The work of the gospel belongs to us all. Jesus' followers share that common struggle. Notice also that Jesus' followers enjoy a common confidence in verse 28. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. The original language here is really fascinating to me. Paul uses a phrase that's translated here as not frightened in anything that includes a Greek word common in literature of the day that describes the startled response of horses. In fact, a contemporary of Paul's, not a believer, but a contemporary historian of the day, 
use that same word to describe the death of a Roman soldier who died in battle not as a result of, uh, of suffering a wound from a weapon, but because he was trampled by a horse that was startled. Paul says, we are not frightened. We are not startled. Things do not take us by surprise. Whatever comes our way should not be a shock to us. But rather we have a common confidence. The assurance that whatever comes our way, whatever things that we didn't anticipate, we may remain calm, not because we think we are equal to the task, but because we have been redeemed by the one who has defeated sin, death, and the grave, and there's nothing that is any greater for him to do on our behalf or through us. We can have a common confidence in whatever challenges come our way. It's based on this reality that while we may not know what's around the corner, the one who holds our future does. We don't have to be broken by some tragedy that we didn't anticipate. You know, I hear a lot of people, I spend time with a lot of different types of people and it's not uncommon today to hear people speak with notes of fear about our culture and what's happening and you know what we're seeing and what might lie on the horizon. Sometimes I can feel my blood pressure rising just hearing people talk about the, the anxiety that they feel. The Word tells us that regardless of what the world does, regardless of what political leader is in power, that we have a common confidence in the Lord himself and his promise to fulfill his mission. Again, friends, he's defeated sin, death, and the grave. There's nothing we face that is beyond that. A common confidence rooted in the omnipotence of God and the omniscience of God. Well, not only do Jesus' followers display a common consistency, share a common struggle, enjoy a common confidence, but notice also Jesus' followers embrace a common suffering. Now, friends, I'm just going to be transparent with you and tell you these words are convicting to me. And frankly, I hope they are to you. Verse 29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. By the way, friends, if you've never developed the discipline of Scripture memory, let me encourage you. Philippians 1.29 is a good place to start because the Holy Spirit can keep us mindful of this truth when things come our way that unsettle us. The reason this passage is so convicting is because of the language that's used here. The phrase that's translated in ESV is, it has been granted to you, employs a verbal form of the word that he uses elsewhere translated as grace. 
Now, if you've been in church more than a week or two, you know that grace is unmerited favor. I like to define it as God's determined love for us. This is the sort of love that my parents showed me and my brother. Not because we were wonderful children, although you probably expect that was the case. Don't talk to any of my junior high school teachers. And you can believe anything you want to. But you know, when, when they used to call from the principal's office at Northwest Junior High School to my mama's workplace, I've often joked if they'd had speed dial back in that day, her number would have been on it. As it was, the Rolodex card with her number was dog-eared and dirty. I remember my mama saying one time, so often the phone would ring at work and the conversation would start, Mrs. Connor, we have your son Dennis in the office. I wasn't valedictorian in my class, but they knew me. You know, in spite of that, my mom and daddy still loved me. Not because I was wonderful. Because I was their son. That determined love. And what Paul is saying here is that when suffering comes our way, it is an expression of God's determined love for us. Now, can I just confess to you my immaturity? When... When I dug deep into this text and realized that, my initial thought was, Lord, I really wish you'd learned to love me some other way. But he says, when suffering comes our way, when challenges come our way, when difficulty comes our way, it is an expression of his love for us. And remember that as Paul writes this, he's under house arrest awaiting a hearing by Roman authorities wherein he could actually lose his life. And Paul says, this is an expression of God's determined love for us. I'll be candid with you, brothers and sisters. I think this is one of the reasons the American church has struggled in recent years. Because frankly, we ain't been accustomed to suffering. We've had life pretty good. I'm 58 years old, and I dare say most people who are my age and younger have experienced very little suffering in their life. I remember hearing my grandmother talk about Hoover days. And I find myself unnerved when I just open the stock track app on my phone and see that it was down. We've had it pretty good. But God says whatever form suffering takes, and it's not always financial. Of course, some of you know because of your own life experience, sometimes it's physical, sometimes it's a matter of illness. The most common suffering I think we see in American society today is, is relationship discord. And yet Paul says, the Lord speaking through him says not only to the Philippian church, but to us in 21st century America, that that suffering is an expression of God's determined love for us. He 
He wrote of this same truth again in more academic fashion to the church at Rome. In Romans 5.3, he writes to them, We rejoice in our sufferings. Know that our sufferings produce endurance. And our endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What he is saying to us is that when we face matters of personal challenge or difficulty, when we as God's people in America feel like we are facing some difficulty we've never seen before and wonder just how intense the persecution may get in days ahead, God's message to us is that this is an expression of His determined love for us. And rather than, I must confess to you, I typically do war against the suffering, complain to him about the suffering. The implication is that the suffering that comes our way is to be welcomed, recognizing that it's an expression of God's grace to us, intended for and capable of shaping us more clearly into the image of Jesus, our Savior and our King. Jesus' followers embrace a common suffering. The final reality I want us to see real quickly is that Jesus' followers rely on a common source. We're going to jump back to the early part of the chapter in verse 6. Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I take you back to verse 6 because this is the root of Paul's confidence. Not in his ability, it's not in his uh, ability to control his own mind, if you will. It's not a matter of positive thinking. But his confidence is rooted in what God is doing. Confident that God would continue to deepen the fellowship of the Philippian church with him and the work of the gospel. Confident also that he would continue to mature the Philippian believers in a variety of ways. And friends, here's what I want you to hear if you haven't heard anything else. No call to any action for us to display any distinguishing characteristic as a believer is ever a call to self-reliance. That call is never a call to self-reliance. It's a call for continued surrender and dependence upon the transforming power of Christ. It is a matter of our faith in Him. You know, again, confession time. I was far too old. I'm embarrassed to tell you how old I was when I finally got it through my head or the Holy Spirit finally penetrated the hard rock of my head to help me understand the same gospel that saves is the gospel that sanctifies. His call constantly for me and for you as a Jesus follower is to rely on Him. Some years ago when I was 
in Arizona, as Brandon mentioned, I planted a church out there and had a lot of great fun doing it, began doing denominational work initially in Arizona, and in the process of that was talking with a young man who was working on replanting a church that was only a handful of years old, maybe 10, 12 years old, already lost its way, had forsaken the work of the gospel and begun to just kind of huddle up, have a good time. And he would constantly call them to respond to the gospel. And he would also, the times that I would hear him preach, he often used straw men and say it's not the gospel. He'd often quote some popular preacher and say that's not the gospel. And I finally asked him one time, I said, I hear you often say that's not the gospel. What I've never heard you do, and maybe I'm just not around all the time, I said, I've never heard you define what the gospel is. And it occurred to me that it would be wise in my own life to try to reduce the good news of Jesus to as few statements as I possibly could for both unbeliever and believer. Again, the context where we were, not eastern North Carolina, where you have a lot of people who are biblically literate, but we're in the American West where many of those people that I encountered day in and day out had never owned a Bible of their own, let alone crack it one open. And here's what I eventually came to. You can probably poke holes in this, but I would commend it to you. Unless you've got a better one, praise God, use it. So the gospel essentially reminds us that we are sinful humans loved by a holy God. That we are redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Not by our efforts, not by our desire to make up for what we did yesterday. We are redeemed by the blood of Jesus. We are assured by the resurrection. Resurrection was the validation of our hope and faith. To say that the sacrifice that Jesus paid in our place was valid. And then finally, we are transformed as we trust in those truths. The constant call to surrender what we know, what we are, what we've learned, what we want. The constant call to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus and what he's done. And in a practical matter, I would say this. Is that those truths sanctify us? They, they do so in very simple fashion. You know, I've sat with people and they complain about their job. And they talk about how awful their boss is. I've had some bad bosses in trucking management and in ministry, sadly. But I would say to them, well, remember, we're, we're sinful humans loved by a holy God. If this dude's not redeemed, if she's not a believer, if her life's not been transformed, if she's not a new creation, there's no wonder they're awful to work for. Their objectives, wishes, wants, dreams, pursuits are different. Doesn't make it any easier, but we understand. And friends, when we find ourselves 
failing, when we make the mistake, when we have to look in the mirror and say, you know, the biggest problem you've got, Bubba, is you. We go back to that simple truth that we are sinful humans loved by a holy God. Redeemed not by our efforts, but by the blood of Jesus. Assured not because we're better today than we were yesterday, but because of the resurrection. As we trust in those truths, we find ourselves growing in transformation and in Christ-likeness. As we wrap up this morning, I just want to challenge you to live these truths. Even if you're not in the habit of taking notes, I hope you'll take at least one or two here. Stick it in your mind. I want to encourage you this week to spend time with another believer. Maybe your wife, your husband, a neighbor, a friend, your parents. Ask them, what gifts and abilities do I have to lend to the church's mission at Calvary? What's God given me? How has He, how has he designed me? Maybe something nobody's even thought of. How can I use that in the advance of the work of the gospel through the mission of Calvary Baptist Church in Rocky Mount and beyond? What do I have that I can use to advance the gospel? Ask God to fill you with the confidence, the assurance of His control and purpose before any challenge comes your way. And then constantly ask yourself and ask another believer if you need to to hold you accountable. How have you responded to suffering? How do I respond? Am I constantly whining and complaining about what's going on? How can I embrace God's suffering as a gift from Him, as an expression of His love? As we prepare to close, I also want to challenge those of you who maybe have never trusted Christ. Maybe you're here because a friend invited you or because you've just been trying to be a better person. You know, the truth of the matter is, until we trust what Jesus has done on the cross, nothing we do really matters for eternity. It is only by trusting that Jesus has died in our place, paid the penalty for our sin, and been resurrected from the dead, that we can know new life, that we can become a new creation. We just recited from 2 Corinthians 5 earlier. If you've never done that, I want to encourage you to trust Jesus. Not yourself, not in your ability to be better tomorrow, but trust Jesus. And maybe you're here this morning and God has convicted you in some other way that there is some ability that you have that you really haven't used it for His glory. You haven't really used it to advance the work of the gospel. Maybe He would call upon you to, to trust Him, to seek out wisdom and how you might do that. Maybe you've just been visiting from time to time and God is calling you to unite in fellowship with this body of believers who clearly loves the Lord, shows that through their worship and through their service. Maybe he would call you to unite in fellowship with this church and to become a member of Calvary, be a part of God's army in this place. Whatever he calls you to do, I pray 
that you'll respond to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for showing that love sometimes even in difficult fashion. And Lord, I thank you for Calvary Baptist Church. I thank you, Lord, for my brother Brandon and how he leads the church to live on mission for you locally and globally. God, I pray our time together here will just simply be fuel for that fire. Lord, I do pray if there's one here who's never trusted you and perhaps they've just tried to be a better person. Lord, will you convict them? Will you make conviction unbearable until they surrender themselves to you? And to say, Lord Jesus, I believe you died in my place. I believe you've risen from the dead. And I want you to transform me. Have your will and way in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We sing our song of response. Brother Brandon's going to come. If the Lord prompts you to respond in some way, I pray that you will. He'd be happy to receive you. Let's sing together.